You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with my co-host, Max Linsky. Evan Ratliff is somewhere else. Max, I understand we have a very special exclusive episode this week. That we do. Uh, Janet Reitman, who a couple of weeks ago published a story in Rolling Stone on alleged Boston bomber Jahar Sanayev. Uh The cover of that story got quite a bit of attention. I'm not sure as many people read the actual piece, uh, but it's an incredible, incredible feat of reporting. And she hasn't talked to anyone. I think no one from Rolling Stone has talked to anyone about the story. They've sort of uh, wanted the cover and, and the piece to speak for themselves. But we got the backstory, and I'm pretty excited about it. Oh, man, I'm, I'm juiced to do stuff like this where uh, stuff just come out, talk to people about it. Uh, we've got a great sponsor this week, Squarespace. If you're looking to put up a website for a small business, a podcast, whatever, they are the simple solution. Uh, if you use offer code LONGFORM8, that's LONGFORM8, you'll get 10% off. Here is Max and Janet. Hey, Janet. Hey, Max. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on. This is huge news because you're the first repeat guest in the history of the Long Form Podcast. So honored. Thank you so much. Also, slightly newsworthy. Uh, this is the first time you've talked to anyone publicly since your story came out yes. two weeks ago. Uh, Except out. for my friends on Facebook. <laughs> well, that's only quasi-public. That's, only, that's, that's really quasi-public. Well, thank you for coming this is the on. the one and only. Um, how have the last two weeks been? The last two weeks have been, um, they've been good. They've been amazing in some ways because uh, very few writers will have the experience of um, of writing a story that becomes kind of national or international news on some level but it's um it's been really overwhelming actually as well and um uh at times it's been a little bit scary because there have been some pretty profound reactions and um directed direct you know at me personally which has been um confusing did you expect the kind of response to the cover that came Walk, I guess walk us through a little bit like that that image goes online what what happens next well I'm gonna speak about this um, just personally as a as a as a writer you know that's what I am I'm a reporter I'm a journalist I have no um, editorial say at all 
um, on, you know, what what goes, you know, what is or is not the cover of the magazine or what, you know, what the cover lines say or what the headlines or the decks say. I mean, all of that is way out of my purview. You mean even, you didn't design the cover yourself? No, I did not, actually. Um, but even, you know, things like, you know, the headline or the little, what we call the deck, the little subhead. I mean, I, I've, you know... There have been many times in my career that I've I've argued for something else to to be you know written there and and I, I have no doesn't work just no say whatsoever so I mean it, writers have absolutely no input in this process um, so as a writer um, I was you know I was informed that my piece was going to be a cover story um, very you know not much before it was actually published. It wasn't, you know, a kind of, it wasn't planned as the cover story. That wasn't the idea. No, 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 no. So no. was it? No, my stories are never the cover, you know. <laughs> we're like, Matt Taibbi gets to be on the cover sometimes. Sometimes. But, not, you know, I do, I do, you know, really, really long investigative features or um, political features or something like that, and um, they never go on the cover. And I just hope people read them. It's basically like, please, you know, I hope you read my stories. Like, do you? Do you have a? That's how I am. You know. Do you have a sense of why this one went on the cover? Um, it was the biggest story of the year. I mean, this is one of the biggest stories of the year. I, I, I truly. Um, and it it's it's a major newsworthy piece we spent um we didn't spend a tremendous amount of time on it for me cuz sometimes i can spend like six or eight or nine months on a story but um so i spent about 3 months on this uh and we really you know we we had a pretty tight deadline we wanted to get it into publication um as soon as we could but um you know it was a, <laughs> i mean it was a major this was this was the largest act of terrorism in the united states uh, domestic terrorism, obviously, um, successful act of domestic terrorism since 9-11. Um, that's a huge story. And we did a story about one of the alleged perpetrators of this act. So, yeah. I, I really want to talk about your whole process with the story. I, I just, the cover was such a big deal. I just want to spend a little bit more time on it. Like, what did you think when you saw it? I was... I, I was very satisfied, is what I'll say. Look, Jahar Zanayev, who is the accused bomber number two from the Boston bombing, is 19 years old. He is the demographic of a, a, a part of our readership. I mean, we're, our readership goes all the way up to, you know, baby boomers. But we have a young, you know, we have a young demographic as well, a big, big youth demographic. He fits right into that demographic. Um, and... I felt that, you know, the, the, the choice of having his face on the cover uh, was a reflection of the magazine. I mean, of the story of, in the magazine. I mean, the, the cover says, look at me, right? And, and, the, and the story is about looking at this person and, and realizing that this person was very normal, quote-unquote normal, very much could have been anybody, could have been your friend, could have been that kid that you had um, used to get high with, could have been that boy that you had a crush on in your dorm. You know, that's who he was. He literally was that that guy. So, I mean, having his face, which was a self-portrait, you know, it wasn't something that he wasn't, he didn't pose. It was a self-portrait. He took that himself. It had been on the cover of many newspapers prior to us. Right. I mean, part and, of the just you know, like 
logistical aspect of the cover is like there were only three or four images in the world that could have been used if you want to put them on the cover. But there's some another element of it, and I understand this is kind of tricky for you to talk about, but I was surprised uh, a bit uh, at the outrage over the cover because it felt to me like um, the cover was doing exactly what covers are supposed to do. I mean, they're supposed to get people talking. They're supposed yeah. to drive interest in the magazine. The best case scenario for a cover of a magazine is that you and I are sitting here two weeks later talking about it. You know that. Yeah. I don't know. It just it it. Uh, I mean, look, I'm. Seemed a, like it did its job. Yeah, I mean, it did its job. Certainly, did its job on on you know one level. If that's how that if that's how what we think a cover of the magazine is supposed to do. Um, and what I will say you know, from a personal perspective is, look, you know, I'm a New Yorker. I live through 9-11. I lost a friend in 9-11 in the World Trade Center. My my editors, myself, a, a lot of people who work for the magazine, we, are, we lived through an act of terrorism and we know what it feels like. So, you know, there has been, there have been accusations t- uh, to me personally of being insensitive. And I, I can tell you that <laughs> I'm, I'm far from insensitive to what not only to you know the political realities of terrorism but to the personal emotional realities of terrorism i breathed it in literally as did many of maybe you many of the people that we know so i think that um this cover had a, you know elicited an emotional response from people um that is not always what magazine covers do um Personally, I think it's kind of great on a certain level because it's um, terrorism is emotional. Terrorism is real. It affects us. It's not something that happens just overseas or just to people that are somehow other with a capital O than us. It happens, you know, oftentimes in, in if you look at, you know, terrorists worldwide, if you talk to terrorism experts, as I have, you know, dozens of, of people who specialize in this, whether they're actual, you know, FBI people, whether they're academics, whether they're psychiatrists, psychologists, you know, the whole spectrum. If you talk to these people, what they will all say is that the vast majority of people who are involved in these kinds of violent acts, extremist violent acts, are what we would consider otherwise very normal people, people who are one of us, part of our community. And, you know, that's a reality. It's a very emotional thing. It makes people very uncomfortable. I totally understand that. How much that was the point of my story, you know? How much of that came to you personally? Were people getting in touch with you personally? Have you been getting emails and yeah. The, point, the point of my story was not to make other people uncomfortable, just to, make, <laughs> right. just to clarify. The point of my story was to convey that, you know, that, that, that not every person who commits terrorism it, it fits the quote-unquote profile of what a terrorist should be. And, you know, in some ways, Tamerlan Zarnayev, who is the older brother to Jahar and, and, the, and the, the, the sort of supposed believed mastermind of this whole Boston plot, you know, he... he He's in many ways, the trajectory that he was on kind of does fit a certain profile. You can see how, you know, he went from a certain place to another place. And, right. And it's a little bit more of the sort yeah. of. But there are lots of other people. I mean, the, you know, an, more, you know, sort of the majority of the 9-11 bombers, for example, were very um, 
normal, unassuming guys, um, you know, one, you know, not particularly religious Muslims. One of them lived with a girlfriend. You know, they all went to a strip club the night before, if you remember. I mean, you know, this is, it's not, um, it doesn't always follow the pattern. And that was what I was trying to convey that, you know, we need to consider people within our own community. We need to look at the factors and the stressors within our own society that can contribute to this because it's not just somebody is born with some kind of anger or somebody is always weird or off or they're mentally ill or there's something, you know, sort of quote unquote wrong with them. How much did you know about Johar before you started reporting the story? Not much. I mean, really, nobody knew anything. That was the whole that was why I felt that he was so interesting. Right. But I mean, I guess like we didn't know anything. Right. If you're if the goal is to be like sometimes it's someone who seems very normal can have this sort of mm. evil in them. Like, how is that the goal before you know how normal the kid is, I guess? Well, I think that, you know, what we knew, I'll tell you how it worked for me. It was I, I literally, you know, I was actually researching, um, beginning another story on something totally different. And I was doing an interview the entire day that Jahar was lying in that, you know, boat and the, this big search manhunt was on for him in Watertown. I, I was actually completely unaware of all of this. Really? I hadn't paid attention to the news from the night before. I didn't know that they had identified anybody. And I started getting these texts from one of my friends who's also a reporter. And um, she was like, oh, my God, you've got to watch this. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm in the Hyatt having an interview with somebody. Actually, <laughs> right. I can't do that right now. Um, and so when I got home, I turned the TV on. And then I sort of remained glued to the TV like everybody else did for the rest of the day and the night. And I, I thought to myself, when by this point they had identified both brothers, and one of them was, you know, this younger brother, 19, you know, there are photographs of him, college student. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, he must, what is going through this kid's head? Right. What in the world is going through this kid's head? And I tried to think, imagine, what would it be like to be 19, go to college, you know, sort of, you're, I'm, I'm already reading the stories, you know, the little stories and, and clips coming out from his friends, like the little quotes saying, you know, what a, what a normal guy he was, that he used to smoke weed with them, like, you know, all the sort of things that we knew about him, which was, you know, the kind of rough outlines of who he was. And I just thought, how in the world did that person get here? And I, I, I kind of, you know, I understand a lot about, um, or some to some degree, I, you know, I understand about... Um, the uh, the crisis in the Caucasus. I know um, probably a bit more about the Chechen conflict than other uh, some other people did um, because I I knew a lot of I had a lot of friends who covered the Caucasus as reporters, so I, I sort of was more familiar with that. Conflict. But you also have a long history of writing about sort of young people and yeah. young people with some troubles. Yeah, I write about. <laughs> Yeah, I write about conflict. I've written a, a lot of stories about, um, you know, about conflicts, whether there are the, you know, uh, you know, wars in Africa, um, the Iraq War, conflicts in, you know, places like Haiti. I mean, I've I've been to a lot of places in the world where, where um, which we would consider conflict zones or crisis zones. Um, and I've I've often written a lot about um, within that context about young people, um, you know, whether it's soldiers or or whoever. Um, who are involved in that conflict and, and what it means to them and what you know some of the issues are affecting them. And then I've also written um, stories that are sort of less political about young people. I mean, it's part of the mandate at Rolling Stone. I think right. when you start off at Rolling Stone, you, you do write about young people. And I um, have always enjoyed it, and I think it's important. And I think 
you know, kids, there's some, you know, some of the greatest stories out there involve kids because they live their lives in such a dramatic way. Their kids are so dramatic and they live their lives very dramatically. I'm going to interrupt Janet just for a second and tell you a little bit more about our sponsor, Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that makes it super easy to build your personal website or a website for your business or an online portfolio. Uh, I'm going to tell you right now, I had never used Squarespace before yesterday. Uh, and then I built a website for myself in 10 minutes, which is kind of embarrassing because I've been supposed to build a website for myself for eight years or something. Anyway. It's super easy. Their templates are real pretty. You can't really screw it up. If you do screw it up, they've got 24-7 support. It's totally free. You don't even need to give them your credit card. If you do upgrade, decide to upgrade, which you probably will, it's 8 bucks a month. If you sign up for a year, you get a free domain name. And if you use the code LONGFORM8, you get 10% off. It's a good deal. Check them out. Squarespace.com. We thank them very much for sponsoring the podcast. And now we're going to get back to Janet. Well, and you know, I mean, one of the incredible things about the story is that you got his friends yeah. to open up in a way that I don't think anyone else has, and and I don't I don't know that you have the story without those kids. I didn't have it without those kids. So how did you get them? Well, I guess let's dial it back a little bit. So you're doing this interview. He gets caught in the boat. Yeah, he gets caught in the boat, and I, <laughs> I'll tell you exactly what happened. So yeah. he gets caught in the boat, you know, and or he's he's in the boat. We all know he's in the boat, um, and. You know, and we're at certain, I guess at six o'clock, we knew he's in the boat. And, and so the next, you know, two and a half hours, we're trying to get him out of the boat. And then they finally get him out of the boat. And, um, and you know, I'm watching all this coverage. And my editor at some point, um, I, had sent an, I had sent a note to one of my editors during the day saying, whoever does this story, you know, for us, it's going to be a great story. Or not even thinking for us. I was just like, whoever does this story, on this kid Jahar, it's going to be a fantastic story. I was doing something else. There's some other. There's another project that I was beginning to work on. That was huge, and you know, had nothing to do with anything like this. Um, and somewhere in the middle of the night, I get an email late at night from my editor in chief saying um, he was interested in the wife, the Tamerlan's wife, and he said he he sent me a, a an excerpt from a story about her. And how she had, you know, grown up in Rhode Island, a waspy right. woman, right? Yeah. And he said, "I think she, I think your story should start there." And I'm like, "Did you just assign me the Boston bomber story?" <laughs> and you know, he was like, "Well, sure. Why? <laughs> why not? I think you should go and check it out." And I was like, you know, I mean, for <laughs> I was sort of like, you know, not not to not to you know disagree on, on any level here, but just, just to sort of remind you of the things that you often say to me, maybe we want to wait a month or so until everything's <laughs> right. calmed down. Because you I mean, know, our, this, our, is, this is the day. This is the day it happens. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, thinking, my God, the world media has descended on Boston. And generally, as you know, I have, I, you know, had, had worked in more sort of breaking news journalism earlier in my career. And, um, and, and sometimes my, my like inclination is to want to sort of go to wherever something right. is happening and I've always had to been you know I've always been reined back by my editor saying no we want to wait wait a month wait two months wait till everybody goes away and then we'll do the story 
So I was surprised that um, that they wanted to jump in right away. And I think it was because they were concerned that, you know, that somebody was going to try to get this story. It might as well be us. And, and that was basically the attitude. And so I went to Boston the next day. But, I mean, everyone was trying to get that story. Yeah. Everyone's still trying to get that story. So it... Not Jahar. Not they tried Jahar. to get Tamerlan. They were very uh, people overlooked Jahar. That was the thing that I found really interesting. They all they overlooked Jahar. I mean, I think they all tried to get him, and they basically couldn't make headway with the friends, mm-hmm. um, and so they didn't get a whole lot. And uh, they were also trying to understand um, what what the FBI and, and other officials call radicalization, the radicalization, quote unquote, radicalization process of these brothers. You know, what what led Tamerlan to do this? You know, who was Tamerlan? Did he have, was he working with anybody? Did right. he have foreign ties? I mean, all those questions. So you get up there the next day so those and you're were, on Jahar. That's I was on Jahar. I was always interested in Jahar. And so my, um, I didn't get anything that first few, those first few days. Um, the only thing I got was, what do you even do when you show up there? Like what? Like what's you get off the train or whatever? What's like the next thing you do? You start you, walking around you Cambridge. Go, no, you go to you like go to your hotel and you start to freak out. I mean, that's <laughs> what I did. I just thought, oh god, you know, this is this is awful. This is the this is awful. I hate this. I hate this. I, I did. I mean, I think you know anyone who has who has covered this kind of story, I'm sure hopefully can relate to this because it's just awful. It's not, you know, nobody's returning your phone calls. I mean, even with a breaking story like this, you're there a day later and you're too late. Seriously. Right. You've, you've already, your br- the bridges have already been burned, you know, by other media. And so, you, you know, kids don't want to talk to you because somebody treated them poorly or the FBI is on their, you know, tail or whatever. It's, it's, um, it's not a pleasant experience. And so um, I, what did I do? Actually, it's interesting. So I have a I have a, um, a a little cousin, a cousin who who just graduated from BU, and he's um, he's extremely bright, and he's a, um, a a budding journalist, and he's majored in journalism and studied journalism in school, and and he uh, was had actually tried to cover some of this as a photographer, and he you know ridden around with some of the photographers um, during the Watertown sort of shootout, and he was eager to help me. Um, so I was eager to have him help because yeah, sure. he also is a student. He's you know twenty one, right. <laughs> a little bit better. And he um, he was actually uh, connected to certain. Um, there were certain people that he uh, could connect to through Facebook and stuff, like say through his fraternity. There was a kid, for example. There was a kid at UMass Dartmouth where Jahar went, who was a member of my cousin's fraternity. But yeah. not, you know, different right, campus. Different chapter so he had different chapters. So he could, um, he actually connected to him and, and um, helped set up an interview, which wow. was great because the kids at UMass Dartmouth did not want to speak because they had already now spoken to, you know, by the time I came in, which was like two or three days later, they'd shut down. So um, so thank you, Matthew, my, my, brilliant, <laughs> my brilliant and aggressive cousin who's going to go far in his career. Um, that was really helpful. And... Um, and yeah, you know, so I just, I kind of reached out, I, I basically started reaching out to people on social media, you know, I, um, I, I did uh, find one friend um, of Jahar's who, just through various sources, I, I was able to contact him and, and sat down with him and had an off-the-record conversation with him. And what he basically said was, look, you know, I think that some of these other, some of our other close friends 
will want to speak to you. He made it very clear that the majority of the people who had been speaking to the media were not actually the closer friends mm -hmm. of Jahar, that his really close friends hadn't said a word, didn't want to say a word, but that, you know, maybe in a month or so, they would be more inclined to say something, but that right now they were very traumatized. So I kind of laid off. I mean, that's what you have to do. And I said, okay, well, why don't we just keep in touch? And I went back to New York, and uh, a week or two later, there was an arraignment um, for one of the friends, this guy named Robel Filippos, who's also a 19-year-old kid, who was... Um, this is the kid who, like, covered up... Yeah, he was one of the... Yeah, he, he's, he, he lied to the police. He lied to the FBI that uh, he had nothing to do with anything, and he helped remove the backpack from Jahar's room and stuff like that. So... He um, and he's, you know, this very innocent looking, um, very na apparently very naive kid from everything that I was told, um, who uh, seemingly just freaked out. You know, he was, he was a kid and he freaked out and didn't know how to deal with talking to the FBI. And he had, a, I think, probably a bunch of conflicting feelings wanting to, um, you know, not wanting. I, I mean, I think it's really important to, to note that, you know, it, it, this goes beyond not wanting to believe that your best friend in the world did something awful. I mean, I, this was a, this was a person, Jahar Zarnayev, who literally this is the only time this has ever happened in my career, and I've been a journalist since the mid '90s. Right? I have never ever had the experience of interviewing, I don't know, two dozen or more, three dozen people, fifty people, who could not. Figure, could not come up with a negative thing to say about this person. They, no one had anything negative to say. And, and actually, everything they said about him was positive. Wild. Yeah, no. And I'm like, I, I can push, you know. I mean, so I'm, you know, of course, they, people always say something positive, but you push a bit. You, you know, you probe a bit. You ask, you know, a million questions. You try to figure out some way to get beneath that. And even then, I couldn't, you know, what happened when you, get, when you got beneath that was pain were these kids who were in just profound pain and, 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 shock. and shock so this kid Robel was you know part of this shocked group and um and he uh had never been in trouble you know with the police in his life he never, <laughs> it seems like he's never been in trouble in his life he was kind of like a you know a, kind of involved in community service and, and things like that and um so he lied and, um, you know, he didn't have a lawyer. Most people don't know that when they talk to the police or they talk to right. None you know, of the FBI, had lawyers, nobody right? had lawyers. You know, most people don't think to have a lawyer, but you were actually entitled to a lawyer. So his arraignment comes a couple weeks later. So his arraignment later. comes a couple weeks later, and I, and I went to the arraignment, and I reconnected with the kid I had interviewed a couple weeks earlier and, and met some of the other friends and, um, and basically just went up to them and said, look, you know, here's who I am, you know, Here's what I'm trying to do. Here's my card. Um, you know, I will send you um, with, in the case of one girl in particular, I said, I'll, let me send you some of the stories that I've done so you can read the stuff that I do because you shouldn't believe who I am by me telling you. Just do your research on me. You know, read what I've done. Go do a Google on me. See, see what other people have said about me. And so she came back to me about a week or two later and said, you know, I, I think it would be okay to meet with you, and you, you know, we. I like your stuff, and um, and I and I like the idea of us all getting together in a group, which yeah. which is how we socialized anyway, and that's what I like to do too, because I find that that it, if if you can get a people a group of people who are friends to sit down together as friends, then people just sort of spontaneously talk, mm -hmm. and 
So that's how. Did you think that's that, how that whole thing happened? Having them in a group might be the only chance to get beyond all of those yeah. positive things. Um, not more. No, uh, it's not about getting beyond all the positive things. It's, it's about getting to an honest place. If you. Um, you te- the the kind of psychological experience of being interviewed is if it's a one-on-one interview is is it it's um, inherently a situation that makes people nervous, especially if they don't know you. Um, it's very hard to disarm somebody, uh, you know, completely. Right. In a one-on-one interview, and and oftentimes you don't need to disarm somebody. You know, money most of the time when I do interviews that are one-on-one, I mean, I'm I'm literally I'm just asking questions. I'm I'm having a conversation, um, but with young people, they are, a lot of them are sort of more inherently self-conscious and nervous anyway, and the idea of being interviewed is scary to them. They're not used to any of this stuff. So, you you know, you don't really get usually quite as much um, unless they're quite mature and sort of self-possessed um so being in a group sort of cuts that a little bit. yeah being in a group is basically being in a group of you know if they welcome you into their group like a peer like a friend then you're there and you're just chatting about whatever you're kind of shooting the shit and that's what we did i mean you could read the transcript it's like you know two hours of shooting the shit with these kids yeah i got the sense reading the story and reading their quotes in the story that like they hadn't really even really started to process what had happened and they had just begun if they had begun to process it at all they had just begun and it felt, it felt like they were doing this dance really they didn't want to defend him mm-hmm. but they also he was their friend yeah and yeah. so it, you're describing yeah a friend uh in the way that you would describe a friend and it, it feels inherently defensive yeah, I think that that's that was a huge issue for them. They were, um, you know, and it was one of the things about them not wanting to use their real names um, because they, I mean, what had happened to them was that when one of these kids had spoken out publicly, the other ones, none of the other ones had, but um, they had seen what happened when they even just talked about it on their Facebook to their friends or talked about it on Twitter. They were attacked, like viciously attacked online by people who, you know, called them terrorist lovers or, you know, you know, questioned their loyalty to the United States um, or whatever. Right. Um, and, and, you know, look, I can tell you what this has happened to me as the writer of the story. And I'm a grown up. <laughs> um, if I were 19, it would be shattering, emotionally shattering. And these kids were really traumatized by that. They were, you know, they had been friends with this person. They were completely shocked. You know, they wanted to get to the bottom of it more than anybody else, really, because this was their friend. And they were being, um, you know, questioned by the, the, you know, various federal agencies and and harassed on on some, in many cases, um, online. And and it was very interesting. There was a kid that I met at at the college at, at UMass, who um, who told me how he and his friends had all spoken about Jahar to certain journalists, I think it was to CBS, like right away. And they didn't realize that this was going to go onto the CBS website. It went online. You know, it might have been NBC. It was one of these, one of the networks. They spoke to the TV cameras. And they just thought it was going to be, a, you know, a spot on the news. 
But in fact, the whole story goes online right away, like in, in, within right. an hour, and they're completely attacked. And so that was something that they they didn't understand. They had no experience of, and it and it you know it freaked them out. They thought they were being followed. You know, they were getting threats. So I mean, that, it's a it's hard for them to defend somebody right. because of what will happen to them if they do. Yet they did want to defend him because the person they knew was somebody that uh, and they did not see as being capable of anything remotely like this. And they were having a hard time to reconciling the person they knew with the person accused of this crime. And, and so much so that um, one of the kids, in fact, said there's, a, there's two people. There's, there's Jokar, you know, with the D, you know, the, the, the DZ spelling. And there's Jahar. Right. And Jokar was somebody they didn't know. But Jahar was their friend, and so they kind of separated it like that, you know. And that, I mean, that's basically what your story was trying to do, was find the link between those two people. Right. Do you think you found it? I don't. I I think to some degree I did, but I think that, um, I guess I did as, as much as anyone who thinks relatively deeply about these issues might have, but, um... No, I think that the I think the only person that can actually make the link is Jahar himself. I mean, he is a very deeply, deeply compartmentalized person. That, that clearly, um, you know, if he is guilty of what that he is accused of, you know, he is he he deeply compartmentalized a part of his life that um, virtually no one who thought of themselves as a close friend had any idea about. There's another part of of the story that I think is crucial in just your telling of it, which is his Twitter account. And you sort of keep coming back to his Twitter as a way of trying to get some sense of like what the fuck was going on in his head. Um, What would you ask him if you could sit down with him? Um, Oh, I mean, I would ask him everything. (laughs) I would ask him about himself. You know, I would ask him about himself. I'd ask him, you know, I mean, one of the questions I would ask was like, would be like, you know, I would imagine it would be pretty hard to go away to college and have your, you know, parents leave the country and your your family leave the country, leave, you know, his sisters left the area. Um, you know, was it difficult? Was it was it lonely, you know, coming home? Home wasn't the same home. I know from my own, you know, personal experience of when I was um, 19, my mom died. And when I came home, you know, I still had my dad, but my house was not the same. It wasn't the same. And my life was not the same without that, um, without the par- my, the, this one of my parents who was, I was so close to kind of being there to, um, to be a parent to me as well as being, um, you know, a, a kind of um, a, a point of reference for me as I grew up. And I think that for Jahar, you know, here's a kid who is in the process of growing up and he goes all the way to school. He goes off to school and his whole um, sort of security blanket, so to speak, is just disintegrates. His parents leave. His friends go off to college. He's not part of this, this school system that he was involved in. He was so involved in his school and his sports team. You know, all of that has vanished. He's no longer part of a sports team, actually, at college. And I think that's a very important 
component that I might have played up a bit more in the stories that he, you know, sports is an anchor. It gives you a structure. And he had this structure his whole life. And then he, he went to college and had that, did not have that structure any longer. He didn't wrestle in college. He wasn't part of any official organized sport. He did intramural stuff, but it wasn't, you know, something where he was, you know, getting up at six in the morning and practicing and having, you know, um, a relationship with the team and having, you know, matches on the weekends or whatever it was. And um, so, I mean, you know, losing all of that, I think, must have made him feel um, a bit adrift. And I would I would ask him about that. And I'd ask him about um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's funny. I don't actually I don't always ask people questions as much as I just hang out with them and talk to them and get to know them. Mm -hmm. That's what I would do. I would just try to get to know him and be like, who are you? What's your deal? You know, what did you what did you want to do with your life? Like, I don't get this. I guess I would say I don't. I, I mean, personally, if I were to meet him, I'd say I don't. I don't get this. Do Nobody you, seems to get it. You know. You spend more time reporting this story than anybody else has. Do you still feel like you don't really get it? Yeah, I don't think I. I think I would be lying to say, oh yeah, so I totally understand him. <laughs> I mean, I don't get it. I don't think anybody gets it. I really don't. I mean, I think that there's this is a person who has a lot to say and he has not said it. <laughs> he may never say it, but I think the only person that could say anything is him. Janet, thank you so much for talking to us. You're uh, welcome. I hope you uh, I hope you stay always. on the story. I, well, yeah, we'll see. See if I can. <laughs> Thanks. Sure. listening to long form i'm max linsky my co-hosts are evan ratliff and aaron lammer our editor is lauren kirchner uh our sponsor this week is squarespace thanks to them and thanks so much to janet reitman for coming in and talking about that story uh she didn't want to get into it but janet has been through some shit over the last two weeks and uh i really appreciate her taking the time we'll be back next week to do your dirty work oh yeah I don't want to do your dirty work no more I'm a fool to do your dirty work oh yeah why do you run why does anyone I always thought that runners loved running and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.